you have your Bible, you might want to turn over to John chapter 20. We're going to take a break this week from our series in the book of Ephesians to focus on the resurrection story. And I want to read to you out of John 20, starting in verse 19. Uh, If you were at the sunrise service, we read the first 18 verses down there, up there, however you want to say it. And uh, here we're going to start in verse 19 and read what happened on the first Easter evening between Jesus and his disciples. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you there in the bulletin, along with a sermon outline on the next page. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the, the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is God's word. Amen. Well, it's been uh, 2,000 years since those events happened on the first Easter night. That's a long time, don't you agree? Uh, Quite a bit has happened in the world in the past 2,000 years. Uh, More than we can ever know. More than we could, you know, scholars spend their whole lives studying that time period and they don't even know it all. Lots has changed. But I want to tell you this morning, there's at least two things that haven't changed since the first Easter. And and they mean all the world to us. You know, a lot of times we think, uh, Easter, man, there's a big claim there. A man rose from the dead, really, and he's never going to die again. And that means that we too can rise from the dead, really? That's a big thing to believe. And also we think, really, 2,000 years ago, I'm supposed to believe that something that happened that long ago is relevant to my life today? Hold on, listen. There are two things that have not changed. Number one, human nature is awfully the same. Don't you agree? Uh, We don't have a whole lot of new tricks. Uh, Just like the disciples that first Easter, they locked themselves in the room because they were afraid of what might happen to them. They They were wanting to save their own skin. Aren't you and I oftentimes overwhelmed with fear and overwhelmed with doubt? But praise the Lord, the second thing that hasn't changed 
is Jesus. The Bible tells us he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so just like Jesus came to his disciples when they were locked in the room of their fear and of their doubt, and he ministered to their fear and doubt to give them faith, so today Jesus still knows how to encourage fearful disciples. He knows how to give hope to fearful people like me and you. Let's talk about that. Y'all want to? There are three things in the bulletin there that I want to talk to you about. First of all, what two fears do we face that could be called the biggest fears that human beings have ever had to face? I want to tell you the disciples were wrestling with those two big ones. Secondly, how does Jesus confront those two things specifically? And then lastly, where is Jesus now when we're afraid? Where is Jesus when we're afraid today? Let's talk about it. First of all, what two biggest fears are there? Now, I think if we started this morning listing out all the fears we've ever had, we'd be here for a while. There's quite a few things that go bump in the night that make us scared. But I would argue this morning that no matter what it is you're afraid of, these two things are underneath them somewhere. If you'll look there at the first uh, couple of verses, verse 19, uh, for example, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, and notice the doors aren't just locked because they're extra cautious people, the doors were locked because they were afraid of the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, the very people who had initiated the arrest and the trial, and the mistreatment, and the crucifixion of Jesus just hours before. Now think about it. You're a disciple, back on the first Easter. Why are you afraid of the Jewish leaders who have just crucified your master? Why are you locking the doors and hiding from them? It is obvious, isn't it? What goes for the master might go for the student. And as they treated him, maybe they're going to treat us that way. We better hide. We better lock the door and hide so that we don't also have to face death. And right there, death. That's one of the big ones, isn't it? Death. Uh, underneath every fear that every human being has is a fear of dying. And yet, this is the situation we find ourselves in. We got to die. It's going to happen to each one of us. And yet it's the thing that we are mort literally mort mortally terrified of facing. Not only that, the disciples are locked away probably because they're ashamed. Can you imagine that? Not only are they afraid, but they are ashamed because they're afraid of another thing. Um, their master, whom they thought was the king of Israel, has just been crucified by Rome when they thought that master would actually overthrow Rome and give Israel the kingdom again. What are they thinking? Is God really with us? Does God really like us? Did he like Jesus? I mean, we believed he was the son of God, but... Does God treat his son like that? That's the second big fear, judgment. There's two things. I mean, I, I'm going to try to get, get it in front of your face today and, and see if you agree with me that no matter what other fear you have in your life, no matter what other room you find yourself locked in, so to speak, underneath it is that twin fear of dying and then after death having to face the judgment. 
The disciples were afraid of that. Uh, they thought God was with them, and then all of a sudden it seemed like he wasn't. It seems like he was upset with them. Uh, they thought Jesus was going to be successful. All of a sudden, he didn't seem very successful, and they thought they might share in the same fate, the judgment of men and the judgment of God, death and judgment. And it locked them in a room for a time until Jesus came and let them out. There's a beautiful scene in uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, which I love as a story. And I quote it a lot. At the very beginning where the character Christian realizes he's got to leave his hometown to go to heaven and he's got to take a long journey to get there, he realizes it by reading a book. Clue, it's the Bible, right? He reads this book. And as he reads the book, uh, he becomes very disturbed and a burden starts to build on his back that he wants to get rid of. And someone comes up to him and says, Christian, why are you so downcast? And I've got this quote for you at the beginning of the worship bulletin today. He says, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die. And after that, to come to judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. And I want, to hear you, I want you to think about that. Isn't that you? Isn't that me? I'm not willing to do the first. I've got to die, but I'm not willing I will go kicking and screaming to that time. I've got to face God's judgment, but I know I'm not able to, at least when I'm thinking soberly about myself. I know I'm not able to stand before that great throne. The Bible calls it a white throne because it's pure of all sin. And here I come as a sinner to stand before that throne. Wow. These two things are things that I would say not only underlie every other fear we have, but actually if you're not a little bit afraid, you're not thinking straight. You're not thinking, you're not thinking about it deep enough if you're not afraid a little bit about those two things. And maybe the older you get, the more that fear becomes tangibly real, maybe. Because even though we could all leave this world at any time, the older you get, well, you start to kind of do the, do the math, Right? The years start to kind of whittle down. The number ahead becomes smaller than the number behind. Fear. But notice what Jesus says. Look there again at verse 19. He came and stood among them and said to them, Peace, peace be with you, fearful disciples. In the Bible, the, the word peace is a lot more than just simply the absence of war. Uh, one writer says it this way, the word peace in the Bible means life at its best, life at its best under the gracious hand of God. Life at its best under the gracious hand of God. It, it's the Hebrew word shalom, which even today, you know, uh, Hebrew speaking people greet each other with that word, shalom. And it means not just, hey, I hope war stops. It means, I hope you prosper in every conceivable way. I hope physically and spiritually you prosper. And here comes Jesus to his fearful disciples with that very one word, simple message. Peace be to you. Shalom be to you. I hope that you, though you're now locked in a room because you're afraid of death and judgment, I hope you find a resolution to those two things. Now, think about it. Jesus, this is what one writer says, Jesus for the first time is saying the word shalom and it means more than just an ineffectual wish. 
generations of Hebrew people had greeted each other with shalom up until Jesus. But all it had meant up to this point is, man, I really hope things turn out okay. Right? The world's bad. We're going through a lot. But, well, shalom? And that's usually the best we can do, isn't it? When we face those two big fears, death and judgment, shalom? Maybe? Peace? We'll see. But Jesus, because he has just risen out of his own grave, and because on the cross, before he made it to that grave, he had said those very famous words, it is finished, meaning he had taken the punishment that we deserve. He had also overcome the death that we deserve to die. He was able to come to the disciples and say, peace, and it meant more than just maybe. It meant, no, literally, I am giving to you now the gift of shalom forever. I am imparting to your fearful heart something that can take away the fear, something that can warm your soul. Uh, James, uh, in the New Testament, in his letter, says, It's no good if you see someone hungry and you simply say, Go and be well fed, but you don't feed them. Or if somebody's cold and shivering and you say, Be warm, but you don't give them your coat. Jesus isn't like that. He didn't come into the world simply to give us religious platitudes to say. He didn't come into the world simply to say nice things that you can cross-stitch onto pillows. Although, you know, that's great in its place. He came to actually impart the blessing that you and I could never get for ourselves. And that's why it's so great that the Easter story is this way. Think about it. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm probably not writing this one down. And yet they wrote it down. If I'm just thinking on a human level, I'm like, yeah, let's edit that one out. That whole thing about us being locked in the room and too afraid to go out. (laughs) Like, let's make ourselves a a little bit more, you know, glamorous. But you see, this is great, y'all. Christianity had an inauspicious start when it comes to its original believers and founders? Well, thank you, son. Very important right there, yeah. That is a good service. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. It's an inauspicious start. Uh, The founders of this faith were not heroes on the first day of its founding, with the exception of one, the founder with a capital F, The lowercase f founders were not heroes. They were scaredy cats like you and me. They also had nothing to bring to the table when it comes to death and final judgment. What they did, though, is simply receive something that only Jesus could give them. And I want to tell you this morning, it works the same way for us. You do not get hope in the face of death or judgment by living good, by trying to pretend that you've lived good, by trying to convince other people that you've lived good, by trying to convince yourself you live good by comparing yourself to the worst among us, the worst folks that you know, the only way to have a solution to death and judgment is to receive it at the hands of the one who says shalom, and shalom is there. Because he went into death, and he came back out again already for us. This morning... Do you feel, I want you to think about this, do you feel locked up 
in fear of death and judgment? Do you know where you stand with God today? That's a very, very important question. Do you know where you stand with God? Do you know that if you died today and you had to stand before your maker, do you know what he would say? If in your heart this morning there is any kind of misgiving or doubt or I don't know or maybe to you or shalom with a question mark, I want to invite you this morning to the one who doesn't put a question mark on the end of shalom. To the one who can give to you the very thing he pronounces over you. Amen? That's the first thing. The two fears. Secondly, I want you to notice exactly how he confronts those two fears. Uh, now, whenever, whenever we get afraid or we get worried about something, we have some common strategies that we use to try to get out of it. And I'll tell you one of mine, and one that I see lots of people doing all the time. The art of distraction. Right? There's an art to it. I'm afraid of something like, for example, death. I know one day I'm going to die, so what do I do? Just don't think about death. Just don't think about it. Why think about it? Just live while you're alive. Don't worry about it. It'll come when it comes. Just don't even think about it. Judgment? Ah, well, you can't even see God anyway, so just don't think about it. It's not that real because you can't put your hands on it, and so just get it out. Out of sight, out of mind, right? I think that's one of the common human ways of dealing with big questions and with big fears and with big doubts. Just get it out of the mind. Don't confront it head on. Just pretend as if it's not really that big a deal. Now, let me, just, let me just say this. If you're here or if you're watching in and you don't believe in Jesus yet or, or you're not sure if you believe in Jesus, I want you to ask yourself a hard question, a hard question. Is that really the strategy you want to carry through the rest of your life? Where every time something bad happens, all you can do is try to medicate yourself or try to explain it away or try to basically get yourself to ignore it. Is that really the strategy you want? If it is, then you don't really have much use for Jesus. But if it's not, let me show you. You've got a big use for Jesus because Jesus does not come to the disciples and say, Hey guys, Jewish leaders, ah, they're not even really real. Don't worry about them. Death, not a big deal. Judgment and sin, eh, why sweat those things? Why sweat the small stuff? Instead, Jesus comes with two very powerful proofs of how he came into the world to take those two problems head-on, directly, head-on collision. First of all, I want you to see he, bought, he brought his bodily presence to them to show that he had taken death on head-on. It says there in verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them physically. He appeared and there he was physically, just like he had been before, standing right in the midst of them. And then verse 20, when he had said peace, he showed them his hands and his side. He proved to them, look at me, I've got the same body. I'm the same person. I've been raised from the dead. You can see the scars of the nails in my hands, in my feet. You could see it in my side where they took the spear and they rammed it in. Here I am, bodily raised. Maybe he looked slightly different. In most of the resurrection stories, he was changed a little bit to where they understood he was, he was glorified. 
He was the same Jesus, but he had entered a whole new kind of life. We might say an immortal life. A life that now could never die again. But he came physically. He came to show that he had really raised, been raised from the dead so that their fear of death might then be undone and disentangled. If you're about to go, say, say for example, you're about to climb a mountain. That's a hard thing to do, right? Very hard thing to do. Isn't it more comfortable to have someone with you who's already done it before and they've come back from it? Right? Versus just being out by, there by yourself, you've never climbed a mountain before and here's a big one and you're going to go figure it out on your own. When Jesus stood among them and said, hey, hands, side, here I am. I was dead. Now I'm not. I was mortal, just like you, subject to death. Now I am no longer subject to death. I can never die again. And if you believe in me, I'm the resurrection and the life, and you, you'll never die permanently, forever again. If you'll believe in me. What was Jesus doing? He was saying, look, that mountain that you're facing of death, you're going to have to still face it, but you got me to face it with. I can walk with you in it. I can walk hand in hand. And guess what? I've been up and down and all around that mountain. I know it inside and out. It could not hold me down. It's incredible. This is the reason why there's all these physical details when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. Touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Hey, do you have any fish to eat? And Jesus sat there and ate a fish supper. In front of his disciples. I mean, why in the world would he do that? Except to just simply prove to them he wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't a mirage or a hallucination. He was the real Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the body that had been raised from the dead. And this is one of those things that if you, if you doubt the truth of the resurrection, it's a good thing to think about. A resurrection claim is actually one of the most, the easiest things to disprove in the world. Right? If you said, hey, so-and-so raised from the dead. There is one super easy way that it can be disproved. How is that? Go to the grave. Open it up. Is there a body or is there not a body? This is why in, in this day, those that didn't believe in the resurrection, they never said, hey, go to the tomb and you'll see him dead there. And these guys are crazy. Just go to the tomb and see him. They never actually said that because they couldn't say that because he wasn't there. They made up these stories of, well, they stole him. They're hiding the body. Okay, well, then in that case, if that were true, you've got... Well, first 12 people, then you got about 120, and then you got, it says 500 people saw him resurrected or claimed to see him resurrected at one time. So you've got 500 people who are colluding together to hide a dead body for the rest of their lives. Uh, Charles Coulson, Chuck Coulson, once said, he, if you don't know his story, he was in Nixon's White House during the Watergate scandal, and then he later became a Christian while he was in prison because of his involvement in the Watergate scandal. And he said, one reason why I believe in Jesus is I was a part of the Watergate scandal and a few people cannot keep a secret for very long. 
people are not good at colluding and keeping secrets, especially about things that have to do with legal ramifications. And in this case, there was legal ramifications for snatching this body. And all of them, over 500 people who claimed to see Jesus, none of them broke to the end of their life. And the Bible records their stories. Wow. Physical resurrection. Why? To show that death is no longer the master. But I want you to notice, he also hits judgment head on. Because he comes to his disciples, and it says in verse 21, he repeats, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Reassurance. Um, You might have thought just a little while ago that God had cursed me and that God might be on the way to cursing you. But notice, I hadn't been cursed. I've been fully accepted by the Father. He raised me from the dead. So, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. As the Father loves me, the Father loves you, and I love you. You are forgiven. You are right with God through me. In fact, he breathes on them, and then he says, Receive the Holy Spirit to transform your life. And he sends them out, verse 23, with the message of forgiveness to the whole world. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Not that the disciples had the power of themselves to forgive sins, but they carried the gospel which does have the power to forgive sins. And they, forgiven people that they were, went out to declare the good news of forgiveness so that other people could also be forgiven. What was Jesus doing? He defeated death. He also overturned the judgment of God. So that when you die, you actually don't have to be afraid of facing God at judgment. You don't have to. You can know, and this is not an arrogant thing, because it's only on the basis of Jesus that you can know this, not yourself. You can know that when you stand in front of God, God will say, I love you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that the Father has been preparing for for you from before the foundation of the world. You see what Jesus does? All we can do about death is say, well, just don't think about it. All we can do about judgment is, well, don't be so serious. Don't be so uptight. Don't be so holier than thou thinking about those things. Just chill out. And Jesus says, no. Don't chill out. Come to me. Look at me. Death defeated. Receive the Holy Spirit. Life given. Forgiveness imparted. That's the second thing this morning, the way that Jesus confronts our fears. And then lastly, I want to ask this simple question as we close and come to communion. Where is Jesus when we face fears today? Um, You might think, and I know I've thought, well, how easy it must have been to have been the disciples on the first Easter. They actually saw Jesus. We don't see him this morning. He's He's not physically here. He's in heaven. And so how are we supposed to know that he meets us in our fears and that he's able to bestow this peace that he's promised onto us? just like he did to them. Well, notice what Jesus does with Thomas. Because here, verse 24, you have an example of one of the disciples who was not there when Jesus first came. He was absent. 
And so when the disciples said, hey, we saw the Lord, Thomas, you can see this there again in verse 24, when we saw the Lord, Thomas famously said, doubting Thomas, unless I not only see, but I want to touch the scars. I want to put my hand into the hole in his side, and unless that happens, I will never be able to believe this. I cannot believe such a story. Does that feel familiar? When Jesus seems absent, as he might to us this morning, because he's not physically here, something like the resurrection might seem an awful lot to bite off and chew and swallow down. And yet notice, Jesus is faithful to find his doubting disciple, even when it's just one in the group. He's compassionate to the struggler. It says eight days later, verse 26, which means the next Sunday. They used to count days inclusively. That's the reason why we say Jesus rose on the third day. Because actually, if you count it, Friday to Sunday, I mean, that's not three full days, right? Yet the Bible says after three days he rose because they count the day he died and the day he rose as full days. And so the eight days are counting from Sunday to Sunday. So one week after Easter Sunday... They're back together again, and guess what? The doors are locked again. So they heard this same sermon but from Jesus himself and didn't fully believe it. And so I realized this morning there's going to be a process for us, right? It's always a process. The doors are still locked, but Jesus came in again and again, stood among them, said the same thing, peace be with you. And then in verse 27, he gives to Thomas a special privilege. He says, not only can you see me, Thomas, not only can you see the scars and the hole in my side, but I'll I'll let you touch him. I'll let you do what you ask. Now think about it. Was Jesus physically there when Thomas said, I want to see the scars? Was he physically there? No, he was not. And yet as one writer says, somehow it seems like Jesus overheard Thomas. And I love this. Jesus is not present physically here today, but he's here. And he has been overhearing you, even when you did not know it. He has been overseeing you, even when you did not know it. And this morning, he knows what every disciple or potential disciple needs. And he's here to deliver it. Jesus takes notice of all the ups and downs and the ins and outs of our lives. He's not just a character in a book. He's not just he's not even just a king who's absent off on his throne in heaven, not worrying about us little people down on earth. Jesus overhears and oversees and comes. He's pursuing you this morning. If you're willing to notice it, if you're willing to notice it, you might even have an encounter with him this morning. Not saying physical, but I'm saying a real spiritual encounter. This morning, you might get that experience like you, you may have gotten when you were a kid playing, you know, robbers in the house, and all of a sudden, you heard real footsteps. 
And you wondered, is there really somebody in the house, you know? That's what C.S. Lewis says about our relationship with God. Sometimes we're on a quest for God. We're really religious, and, but yet the last person we think to actually encounter is God himself. It's really weird that we do that, but we do it that way. This morning, he may surprise you. Maybe he's surprising you right now. As he's letting you know through the word that he's been overhearing you and overseeing you, and he's here today to offer you forgiveness of your sins, a new life by his Holy Spirit, a new mission in his kingdom, and yes, a new hope in the face of death. He's here to deliver it. Is Jesus pursuing you this morning? Is he pursuing you? Jesus said to Thomas, look at what it says in verse 29. Have you seen Thomas? Have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This morning, that's us. We're in that category. We will not see Jesus this morning physically. I pretty much guarantee that unless he comes back, right? It probably won't happen. And yet he's here. He's speaking. He's moving. He's going to come today and show himself to us through communion. And we get a chance to actually have fellowship with him. If you will notice him this morning, if you will respond this morning in faith, he will come into your locked room. And he'll not just say peace. And there certainly will not be a question mark on the end of it. He will impart peace to your fearful heart. Amen? Let's pray together.